Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 791st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who was growing way more food than he could eat himself. We're talking with Jeff Robinson about growing a lot in a little space. Jeff's background is in environmental science, and he has spent the last decade working for regulatory agencies doing compliance inspections to help promote a healthy environment. However, growing plants, vegetables, and flowers has been a passionate hobby of his for close to 15 years and has given him a lot of leftover produce each season. Unwilling to throw it away, he had to think of something to do with it all, and about 10 years ago, he started canning. Salsas, pickles, and jams were a great solution to the abundance of crops he grows. A couple of years ago, after encouragement from friends and family, he started a business combining gardening, cooking, and canning. It was a steep learning curve and an immense amount of work. However, now he's harvesting the fruits of his labor. His canned goods are available at farmer's markets in Western North Carolina and online. Welcome to the show today, Jeff. Are you ready to rock? Ready to rock. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I've always had an affinity for nature since I was a little kid. In college, it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, but I took an earth science class my freshman year and all of a sudden things fell into place. I've always been fascinated by the Science Channel and National Geographic, and I guess that's where it all really started. So you don't just learn gardening overnight. Like anything else, it's a process. You start with a couple of things and you see how it goes. Uh And every year I would try a different vegetable or fruit. And I got better and better at it. And it it goes hand in hand with environmental science. Now, my background is in environmental science and earth science. So I'm not a botanist. I'm not a Uh, I didn't go into horticulture, but biology and geology have a very fine-tuned relationship. So it is fitting. It started out as just a hobby, something I wanted to do. And then it became when I've had several gardens, five or six of them over the years. And uh, then it just, it just became an expectation that I always want to be able to garden. I've had, I've lived in some places I didn't really have, the property wasn't really set up for it. I didn't really have enough space to do it. Yeah. Um, I bought my house about six years ago. Not a lot of trees on the property, but a lot of sunlight. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do with it. And it has just, I've done more and more and more each year. It's kind of addictive, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's gratifying. It's a lot of work, but it's very gratifying watching the process happen every single day. A little bit more progress made with their plants. And then maybe it's a placebo effect or just a psychological trick I'm playing on my mind, but it tastes better when you've grown it yourself. No, 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 no. That (laughs) is an actual real thing. It does taste better when you grow it yourself. Absolutely. If for no other reason, you're getting it right when it's ripe. Yeah. And to know that I did this. Right. I did this. And what kinds of things do you grow a lot of? I started out doing tomatoes and cucumbers and squash that I did that for the first few years I've done I've grown carrots zucchini 
radishes, onions, garlic, corn, beans, peas. I have attempted to grow broccoli a few times. I have not been successful with broccoli. <laughs> Maybe the, the, the region I'm in, it's very difficult to get it at the right time. It, it has fruited, but I, I've never been able to get broccoli with a nice, dense, tight crowns yeah. like you see in the grocery store. So I gave up on that one. Berries. I've done raspberries. I grow. I currently grow. Have some blueberry bushes. I don't sell blueberry jam or raspberry jam because I, I don't really have enough space to grow enough of it to make it worth it. But you sell strawberry jam because I got a jar of it from you. I do strawberries and blackberries. I've got a couple hundred feet of fencing for blackberries. The fence came with the house, and I just decided, you know, started out with a couple of vines. People have asked me the cultivar of strawberries, and to be perfectly honest with you, at the time I planted the strawberries, I didn't know I was going to start a business, and I didn't know I could start, I could grow strawberries, so it was accidental what happened. I love it when that happens. Yeah, I, I just bought a pot, and I just put it in the front yard, and it, it just started taking over, shooting out all these offspring shoots, and I just let it do what nature does. And then after a couple of years, I just started getting 30, 40 pounds of strawberries off of that patch. Wow. Um, 30 or 40 pounds. This so like a lot of other things, that the more you pick, the more you get. It, it teaches the plant, to, it tricks the plant into thinking it needs to reproduce more so it'll produce more berries. And it was just that one patch for the first few years until a couple of years ago, I started the business and I started expanding more of it. Having data to go off of after the first year, you don't really know how much of anything to plant. So it was a guessing game. Yeah. First year. I didn't re realize until I started doing the markets that, hey, people like this. So I need to grow more. I'm going to have to plant more and I'm going to have to grow more. We met each other at the Weaverville Farmers Market. And your product that you sell is canned goods, correct? Correct. What different canned goods are you selling? Right now I have two types of pickles, bread and butter, and a garlic and dill. I have two types of jams, a strawberry and a blackberry. I have a couple types of salsas, a red salsa and a green salsa, and then tech, really, if you, the red salsa breaks down into mild, medium, and hot. I do have plans to add at least two, maybe three more products, and then I'm done with variety. Yeah. I just can't do more. It's too much after that. I've got a yellow salsa that I've uh, got a process authority letter for, and it should be available sometime in September. It's a fruit salsa using lemon boy tomatoes, jalapeno, habanero, pineapple, and mango. Wow. I'm also going to do a spicy pickle. That will probably be available next summer. And I'd like to do a blueberry jam as well. I do have blueberry bushes, but they're not that mature yet. So I don't know when I'll have that available. Wow. I asked you this last time I saw you at the market. You're not buying any produce. You're growing all of this, right? Correct. That's pretty epic. That you actually grow everything that you then can. Now, there are some ingredients I do have to buy. Of course. Herbs, I just didn't have enough space to do that. The most important things I, I focus on are the cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, the berries, and tomatillo. I also grow garlic and onion. I don't save money on that. It's more for, that's more for my own, my own doing that I did this 
you know, yeah. you know that I, a selling point. I also grew the garlic and onions that I put in the salsa and the pickles. Nice. So I, I want to talk about canning because we haven't had a whole lot of people on the podcast talking about canning. You said a process authority letter. What's that? So a process authority letter is issued by NC State. It takes about six weeks to achieve one. And it in, involves sending off lab samples to NC State and also notifying Department of Agriculture and the FDA. So I have to register my products with the FDA. I'm not inspected by the FDA. Uh-huh. But the North Carolina Department of Agriculture is actually the governing agency that I fall under. And they adopt the FDA's, most of the FDA's requirements. They can go more stringent than the FDA if they want to. Mm-hmm. Most states usually just adopt what the federal requirements are. But NC State is the lab that, that analyzes the product. They check the pH on it. They check the size of the, of the solids that are in it. And they give you a letter stating, okay, everything looks good with your product. Here are the steps that we need you to do when you're making your product and canning it. And as long as you're following these guidelines, everything should be safe. So you're making a batch and you're sending it to North Carolina Department of Agriculture. I sent to NC State University, actually. It's a one-time deal. You don't have to do it every year or anything like that. It's they want You give them their, your recipe and you tell them how much of everything you're putting in there. You're telling them what ingredients... For example, salt. Okay, I'm using Morton's pickling salt. You send Department of Agriculture things like copies of your labels and making sure that the labels meet the FDA requirements. Once you get the process authority letter from NC State, you submit that to the Department of Agriculture, and that's what you go off of when you're making your product or when you're getting inspected. So at some point, though, you make a batch and you send them the batch, or are you just sending them data? You send them samples, you send them two yeah, samples, right. one's a backup, and you send them in, you make the batch in the volume that you, you do a batch like you would normally make it, yeah. like to sell it at market, same size batch, and then you send them two samples in a representative jar. So I sell a pint and quarts for the salsas and pickles, uh-huh. and then half pints for the jams, and I, I'm going to add pints for the jams as well. And then you send them one of those. So you send them two samples, takes about six weeks. They analyze it. They send you a report. Do, hold on. Do they analyze it by putting it on toast and stuff? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know. I hope so. I, right? I hope the others are they don't need and they just enjoy it. Exactly. Uh, All right. So uh, that's the compliance process through the state. Now, are there regulations on the kind of kitchen that you have to use? You have a couple of di- different options. Um, I use a certified kitchen in Marshall, the cooperative extension with Madison County. Oh, very good. I've, uh, heard the, I've heard of that space. Yeah, it's a great place. I like the people there. It's really close to my house off Jupiter Road here in, in Weaverville. You can't have your home inspected if you're meeting certain requirements. You've got thermometers in your kitchen. Everything is stainless steel. You've got separate hand washing sink things like that that same requirements that a a health inspector would require of you now i have done the home kitchen inspection before and it was not as stringent as like a health inspector would come out to a restaurant yeah 
I started using the certified kitchen because I found one that was very affordable and it was just easier to go to a certified kitchen and do it. I compare it to like going to gym to work out or going to the library to study. It's if you go in there, you're going to get it done easier. You're going to clean everything up right then. It, it was just more, more convenient, honestly, to do yeah. that. And I just want to point out for everybody listening, because I don't believe in Arizona where I came from, they offer a commercial kitchen at the cooperative extension. But what I heard you say is that the cooperative extension office in Marshall, North Carolina has a commercial kitchen that you can rent. Yeah. That's epic. Right now, it's an older facility. They are going to expand it. And it's supposed to be, from what I hear, it's supposed to be 10 times nicer than what it is right now. They call it a value added, a three sink washing system, everything stainless steel. I imagine that they get inspected as well. Oh, I'm sure. maintain their certification wow all right so we did compliance through the state we did inspection through the state all right now you have a whole bunch of strawberries what volume of strawberries do you need in order to do canning and what does that canning process look like to get the strawberries from a strawberry to the jar of jam that i brought home and used as a topic on my vanilla ice cream. So we're talking about urban farming and how to get a whole lot of food on a small space. So just to let you know, I'm on about a quarter acre, including my house and driveway. Right. Not that much space, but you don't need that much space. I'm a small scale operation. I have five strawberry patches at my house. In order for me to do a batch, I can do any size batch and just adjust I need to. I can always contact NC State and have them tweak things. I don't want to do that. I like to do 40 pounds of strawberries in a batch. Wow. Uh, and, it's, and it's really important that I, that I I always do the batches the same size, not just for the regulatory process, but from a quality control standpoint too. When you're doing a recipe, if you mess with the ratios, sometimes it doesn't always turn out, right? Right. You can't, it, it's not, it doesn't always work out where you can just do multiply everything by two and it's going to come out the same way. For example, you do a, a batch of salsa twice the size. Now you've got twice the size of twice the amount of jalapenos in there. And maybe some of these jalapenos are hotter than the others. So then, yeah. then you just have to, you have to taste test it and see, you know what I mean? Some batches of salsa will end up coming out maybe a slightly hotter just because of when I picked the pepper. But back to the, the strawberries. strawberries, so I don't have acres and acres of strawberries. I can't pick 40 pounds of strawberries in one day. And strawberries, you, you don't have a whole lot of time. I don't know if you've ever bought fresh strawberries. you got a couple of days to figure out what you're going to do with it. So I have a 21 cubic foot freezer that I'll use. Uh-huh. And I made a discovery when I started freezing them. I'll pick about five pounds of strawberries every morning. Starting in late April, I'll get a little bit. May is really the heavy hitter for strawberries for me. And then into June. And then once it gets hot around the middle of June, they really, they start to go dormant. They back off a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you may get a little bit, I'll get a little bit more in the fall, but not nearly the volume that I get in May. And I'll pick five pounds every morning, pick the crowns off, put them in a freezer bag, stick them in the freezer. Then when I, once I've saved up enough to to do a batch, 40 pounds worth, I'll thaw them out. And what I've discovered is that actually helps with the thickening process. Yep, I can get that. Much better. And it saves me time 
when I'm cooking it, I don't have to, I don't have to cook it for, I don't have to boil it down for quite as long, which is another issue with strawberries, specifically strawberries. They're much more sensitive than like a blackberry or a blueberry. You can scorch them very easily. So you have to be careful with strawberries. You have to cook it long enough to get the consistency where you want it, but you don't want to cook it too long where you end up scorching the strawberries. And I don't put a lot of sugar in my jam. So it, it's more on the tart side and strawberries will get, even without any sugar added, they'll start to get more tart when you concentrate them than sweet. So with the strawberry jam, I'll cook it for, I don't really, I like to get it to a rolling boil, but I don't, once it's at a rolling boil, I'll do it for about an hour. Anything more than that, I start to get a little nervous. I've done it for longer and I've ended up this kind of ties into one of my, my, my biggest fails yeah. <laughs> here. But I process the strawberries. I add a little bit of lemon juice. That helps with coloring and just adds a little bit more depth to it. I don't put a lot of sugar in there, but I do put some sugar in there. It's about, yep. And I, I mark it as about 15%. I'm not required to put nutritional information on my jars because I don't sell wholesale. I have to have the ingredients on there, of course but not nutritional data, like how many grams are in each serving of it. You have to pay an additional fee to NC State in order to do that. So I do a batch, you have to, and you follow the process authority letter and it'll tell you, you know, cook, bring to this temperature 180 degrees for minimum of 10 minutes. And it's always going to be more than 10 minutes. It, right. Every batch is going to be more than 10 minutes and it's going to be more than 180 degrees. Now, the jams are classified as an acid food, not an acidified food like the salsas and pickles. Mm -hmm. They're not as heavily regulated. My inspector actually said, she's like, jam, you just register with us and you know you get your process and you just do it. She wasn't as concerned about watching me make jam as she was wanting to watch me make pickles or salsa. And the reason behind that is that the natural pH of berries and fruits is so acidic that you don't really need to add anything to it. You still have to temp it and cook it at the right temperature. But you could just have a jar of strawberries with no lemon juice, no sugar, anything. And the natural pH itself would be so low the threshold that it would, I won't say prevent, it's always possible for microbial activity to happen, but you're greatly reducing the risk of microbial activity. Got it. And out of 40 pounds of strawberries, you've prepared them, you've cooked them, they're ready to go. Now they're ready to go in the jars. How many half pint jars do you get from 40 pounds of strawberries? Uh, somewhere around 80. About for every pound of strawberries, I can get one and a half to two jars, somewhere around there. Two couple of jars, depending on how long, the thickness, how long I've cooked yep. it, the thickness of it. And it's better to have it, to get that consistency right and have fewer jars than more jars and it be really thin. And now it's time to put them in jars. And that's the canning process or the jarring process. Are you using a pressure canner? I don't use a, a pressure canner. Actually, what's on my process authority letter is called, the canning process is called the hot fill and hold method. You bring everything to boil, you, you temp it with a calibrated thermometer, you check the pH with a calibrated pH meter. And so you've met your requirements there. The pH is 2.9 and the temperature is 208 degrees. You know, okay. let's, let's, say, let's say hypothetically, that's what it is. Yeah. Then you get your ladle out and you start 
pouring it in the jars. You take a lid. What I like to do with the lids, I'm not required to do this, but it's just an extra precaution. I boil the lids first. It softens up the gasket on there, makes it a little bit easier to create a seal, but I don't have Then you put the lid on there, you put the ring, you turn it over, minimum six seconds. That is actually the process part that sterilizes the jar is the heat. And then you turn it back over right side up and the steam from that. This is why everything has to be temped at minimum 180 degrees. The steam from it is what actually seals the jar. Really? Later, yeah, moments later, you'll hear the jars begin to seal. They'll start making ping sounds. Yep, the popping sound. Gotta love that. Yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, gratifying feeling. Now, a couple other things I like to do after the canning process. That's where you're done. Now, there's quality control. What I like to do with the jars is I like to give them a bath afterwards. It cleans off any gunk. There's always going to be, you do that many jars and there is going to be something that gets out on the jars. I do an additional process. I'm not required to do this, but I checked with NC State and they said, you don't have to, there's no need to do this. And I was like, I want to. Now in the canning process, you temp the first one in the last one and one in the middle. And this is coming down from Department of Agriculture. You don't have to temp every single jar. But you temp the first one and you temp the last one and one in the middle and make sure those three are all above 180 degrees. So you're sticking a thermometer in the jar. Correct. Now, what they what you do is you can a jar, you let it seal or you can a jar and then you do the inversion method of it for six seconds and then you open it back up and then temp it. It has to be temp- oh. at, at that point. That oh. point has to be over 180 degrees. OK. Yeah. Can you use one of those pointer thermometer things? That I don't know about. I think Department of Agriculture would have an issue with it. I haven't asked my inspector about that. It's a good question. You should ask, yeah. I can see it as long as it's calibrated and it's ISO certified, international standards, I'm sure they would be fine with it. Maybe you don't have to open the jars that way. Maybe not. So then we started going down this path and you said... Beginning, middle, and end, you do the temp check, but you said you do something different. So this is after I've, I've canned all the jars. I do a water, I, so they, like I said, they only require me to do the first, middle, and last. This was a new method for me. I'll I was going to say, I've never heard, I've been canning for decades, right. and I've never heard that. We're all used to the water bath, the hot yeah, water bath. exactly, or pressure. Yeah, or a pressure canner. So this was, I was like, okay. I asked them about that. I told them my process was like, technically, that's not an approved process. It's like, okay, so what would you like me to do? And they tell me, we'd like you to use the hot fill and hold method. And he's like, and this will save you money and time. And I was like, okay. All right. I was a little little skeptical of it at first, but I I do have to admit the seal, it does get a better seal than than, uh, the water bath method. I checked with NC State and said, can I do the water bath afterwards, just as an extra precaution, just to make sure that every single jar does reach that temperature. The the other side of it is that it gets anything, any residue, any jam that somehow gotten spilled off the jar, sterilizes the outside of the jar too. Because I have had jars that were perfectly sealed and whatever was left over on it got some gunk on it in the canning process and there was mold on it. Yeah. 
inspector told me, she said, as long as the seal finds, the internal part of that jar is fine. Now I'm having to disinfect the outside of the jar and if that happens, and it's just better to get everything perfectly clean off the outside of the jar. I leave the lids, the ring around the lid. I don't tighten them up that much. I let it breathe just a little bit, just so that if there's any water or anything in there, it doesn't end up rusting the lid in the process and it's trial and error. These are quality control things I've had to figure out from having stuff sit on a shelf for several months. I, I give them a bath afterwards and make them look all pretty. I dry them off so then I can put the stickers on the bottom of the jars and then I put the ring back on and then you're done. Wow. That is, this is the most comprehensive conversation we've had about canning on the podcast. Thank you so much for that. This is epic. Yeah. And it's the same similar process with the pickles and the oh, salsa. Yeah. The fundamentals are still the same. Each product has something a little bit different about it as far as making it, but the canning process is still the same for all. Wow. So I have a, a question for you. In life, we do things and you're stepping out and doing this, your Jupiter farms, and there's a personal reason you're doing it. Something has happened along the way probably at a market or something where you're interacting with somebody and whatever that interaction was, it confirmed for you, oh my gosh, yes, this is the reason I'm doing what I'm doing. Do you have one of those that you can share with me? Yeah, I've had customers tag me on Instagram and they come back and tell me how much they love my product and confidence looks better on you when it comes from yourself instead of validation from others. But it does work with, it does work with validation from others too. Right? <laughs> oh, I didn't know what to expect when I went to these farmers markets. I didn't know. I didn't know how much I was going to sell. I was like, I've got friends and family that like it. Maybe I can make a little bit of extra money. Yeah. And then people keep coming back and buying it. And they tell you how much they like it. Or they say, these are the best pickles I've ever had. Or they <laughs> tag you on Instagram and they say, they quote me and they say, and I said something like, I didn't even know that sh commercial salsas put sugar in them, which I don't put any sugar in my salsas. I don't see any point to that. And they quoted me and it, this was just something I said. I didn't realize I was going to get quoted, but they loved it so much. They tagged me on Instagram and, and people come back and we get repeat customers and, and then the market notice, the market notices people at your booth and they want to keep having you back every year. And so it's confirmation because you don't know anything until you just put it out there into the world. The same yeah. thing that happened when I, I was, I played music for professionally for several years and you don't know until you write a song and you bring it to fruition with other people and you go out and you play it. You have an idea, you like it, but that doesn't mean other people are going to like it. So yeah, getting tagged on Instagram by people and having people come up and tell you how much they love your product and it does. It motivates. It keeps you going. And how many markets are you in? Right now, I do Weaverville Market. I'm based out of Weaverville, so I do uh -huh. Weaverville Market, East and West Asheville. I do Black Mountain, uh, Brevard. Wow, you do a lot of farmers markets. Yeah, and that's not my end goal. I will eventually reduce the number of markets I, I go down to, but I've got some help with the market side of things. I have to make the product. I can have someone help me making the product as long as they're under my supervision, mm -hmm. because I had to get a certification. I had to go through an acidified foods course and do some testing yep. and pay. It wasn't a nominal fee, but it wasn't anything. It was about 400 bucks to take the class. And it's a one-time, yeah. it's just something you got to do. 
Uh, so I can have someone help me in the kitchen, but they can't make the product for me. You and have so, to do all the product making. Unless they take that course and get the certification, yeah. they can do it as well. But if they're helping me, they have to do it. Yeah, it, I have to be supervising them. Wow. All right. Um, well, so, yeah, I, I do a lot of markets, but it's not the, I don't plan on doing this many forever. Just getting, feeling out. You, you try a bunch, you figure out which ones are, which ones you do best at. You get a feel for the markets. And uh, yeah, cool. Which ones you like best. And then also there's a lot of, I had to, I spent a lot of money building raised beds and trellis equipment and all this. So getting the initial investment paid off was my, my primary goal. And now I'm at a point where, hey, it's all manageable now. There's no need to do as many market because I have to make more too to do just to do those markets. And I think I figured out which ones I like now and uh, nice. get, get some of my time back. Right. People, and you have a website as well. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah. So the, JupiterFarmsNC.com. And people um, can go there and buy this stuff and you'll ship it to them. Correct. I, I do have an online store right now. I take all major credit cards. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might've learned from it. We were talking about jam and this was a big eureka moment for me with making jam where I've, yeah, I've, I've botched batches with it and I ended up caramelizing the sugar in straw, both, I've done it to both strawberry and blackberry jams before. Uh -huh. And it came from over-processing it for cooking it for too long. And how did I overcome that? First thing I did was I got a cast iron burner plate to use so that it distributes the heat more evenly. The other thing that I did was I noticed that when I add the sugar last, that's the last thing you do. Turn the heat off, add the sugar. Cook it down to the consistency you want it because trying to add the sugar after and anticipating how much the sugar is going to thicken it up doesn't work. Yeah. It's not going to thicken it up that much, especially when you're using only about 15% cane sugar. You're not really putting that in a 40 to 50 pound batch and you're yep. doing somewhere between 15 and 20% cane sugar. It's not going to thicken it up that much. So get a consistency where you want it. Take a little sample, put it in a jar, put it in the size jar you're going to use. That's very important. Put it in the freezer for a little bit, let it thicken up, check it. If it's if you're happy with the consistency, Go from there, remove it, turn off the heat, and then add the sugar. So those two things were a game changer for me. Um, and it, it, it really gets a consistency where you want it. And it eliminates any chance of that sugar caramelizing. People might like that flavor, but it's not, it's a more bitter flavor than sweet. So that was a game changer for me. Painful. I wasted some berries. Couldn't really, <laughs> there's not really any salvaging it after that point. Oh, uh, yeah. You could try dilute, making another batch and diluting it, but you may just, you just got to cut your losses at that point. Yeah. Wow. And what do you consider your biggest success? Well, I've got a few big ones. My education, my house, what I built here, not just, not the business itself, but the, the, the actual place where I grow everything and how grueling that was building all this stuff and having neighbors drive by my house and stop and congratulate me and say how much they like all my raised beds and everything is organized and is painted and looks good. I didn't just, it's not just in the ground. My, my biggest success with the business is just, is really that more than the product itself. Make jams and pickles and salsas and they're terrific. They're great. You should, 
anyone listening to this podcast should should buy go on my website and if they don't believe me purchase a jar right now when i started i'm just making pickles and salsa i didn't think it was the greatest thing in the world is this is what i do and, and i hope you like it and it turned out that everybody loves it but my biggest success really is 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 the gardening part of it and figuring out hey i can harvest three different ingredients on a small property being familiar with the life cycle of the plant and when it thrives and how long it lasts and then using that to my advantage because i don't have acres and acres where i can have right plant multiple things overlapping at the same time. I pretty much everything that I grow the garlic in are the same beds that I plant the cucumbers in, are the same beds that I plant tomatillos and lemon boy tomatoes in, but it's using the life of the plant and being familiar how long this plant will actually last and knowing when you can plant and when you can harvest. Nice. And what drives you? What's your big why? Now this one is not as romantic as I would like it to sound. But I started a business when things started inflating and I've got a job and I, I do make decent money at that job, but you always seem to need more money. And I hate that was the driving reason for why I did this, but it's also something I'm passionate about. And it was something I was going to be doing anyways. And the support and encouragement from my friends and family is what motivated me why not? Why not do this? They're all encouraging me to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I can do this. Yeah. Why not? I, <laughs> I should do this. And let's, let's at least do this. And honestly, I had a bad day. One day I lost my wallet and my keys within 24 hours. Of each other. And I had, and I took out a loan and I made a small initial investment on some equipment and started doing research on how do I do this? What are the regulations? What do I have to do to start a business and started researching? And that's what prompted all of this was just having a bad day. It had already been in the back of my head. That was the spark that said, okay, I'm going to pull the trigger and do this. Wow. There's a song out there. The line is, so you had a bad day. And I can't remember the rest of the song, but I think it goes on to say, <laughs> get over it yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So I read a book earlier this year. It's called 4,000 Weeks. It's by Oliver Berkman, and it's Time Management for Mortals. And the first 50 pages of it are a little disconcerting, but it does get to a positive note. It's uh -huh. talking about how we're always chasing the future. And we're always, we always want to feel like we have control over our lives, but we really don't. We want to feel like we have control over our time and we're trying to manage them and we're, we're living off of a list and I got to get these 10 things done only to mm -hmm. find out that list never ends. <laughs> right. The list, and there's only another list. And the more things you do, it creates more things to do. So it's fine to get a lot of, a lot done, but are you living a balanced life. Mm. And to me, everyone defines happiness as something different. But to me, happiness is living a fulfilling life. It isn't a constant state of joy. It's living a fulfilling life and having meaning and doing something you care about. Yeah. If you look at happiness as this constant state of joy, you're going to be disappointed. And if you're constantly trying to force yourself to in, be in the moment and enjoy every moment, you're also going to be disappointed so a lot of paradoxes in the book but there is an underlying message 
just have a balanced life. Don't try to put too much time into one thing and try to do more now so that you'll have more time later because then you'll run out of that time and time is a finite resource. You can always make more money, but you can't make more time. Amen to that. And it sounds to me like maybe this is also bordering on your final piece of advice. Do what you love. Be willing to invest in yourself. Follow your dreams. Don't be afraid of rejection. Don't be afraid of failure. I've done a lot of things in my life. I've failed a lot. I've also had a lot of successes. But you're not going to know unless you take that leap of faith and you try. Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jeff. And how can our listeners get a hold of you? You said Instagram. So let's talk about Instagram and website maybe. Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Jupiter Farms NC. Now all my contact information is on my website, jupiterfarmsnc.com. My email is contact at jupiterfarmsnc.com. I have my phone number and email listed on the website. All my contact information is on a jar if you purchase. I do. I was doing business cards. I'm trying to steer away from business cards these days and encourage buy a jar. And that's your business card. card. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, there you go. Again, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jeff. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Jupiter Farms. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.